if it's okay with you, Raphael, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. My name is Raphael Salazar. Most people call me Raffi. Um, I'm an occupational therapist by trade, um, and I graduated back in 2012. And in 2017, I began working on a large project in the state of Georgia to help transition uh, folks with disabilities out of state-run institutions and uh, did everything from supporting them through the transition process and finding community placements for them to providing clinical and, and doing some clinical oversight and support for both the providers that were serving these individuals and then the individuals. That's awesome. Um, I was, I hope you don't mind that I went to your website and, and, and then did some research. Um, but oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I saw that it said that nearly 70% of therapy patients never complete their course of care. Um, why do you think that is? Well, that's an interesting, an interesting statistic, and it seems pretty high, right? Like 7 out of 10 patients not coming back. Uh, but when you dig into the literature, the bulk of reasons or the majority of reasons why patients might not show up to a follow-up appointment or not complete their course of care has a lot to do with the interpersonal experiences or interactions they have with staff clinicians or uh, staff at that clinic. So, for example, a patient comes in for an initial appointment, either gets treated poorly or just has a negative experience at that clinic, and they walk out and say, yeah, I'm not coming back. So that when you're talking about the 70%, the bulk of the of the, the folks that aren't shown back up to therapy after appointment one is usually because of uh, negative interpersonal interactions or in negative interpersonal experiences at a healthcare facility. Why, why would you say that the majority of, of staff at those clinics um, chose that career path if it, it's apparent that they hate their job? <laughs> well, you know, I think I say this about healthcare workers in general. I think the the majority of people who find themselves working in the healthcare field, whether through administrative work or through being an actual licensed clinician or a patient-facing employee, the majority of those people really went into healthcare and and went into the field from a, a desire to help people. Um, and I think ultimately. That can't be overstated. Sean, are you still there? I'm still here, yeah. Okay. You all right? I'm fantastic. Okay, great. <laughs> I just... Well, I'm just... I just have allergies, that's all. Oh, okay. 
Um, well, as I was saying, I think the majority of people that go into healthcare, whether on an administrative side or in a clinical capacity, ultimately they came to healthcare out of a desire to help other people. I think that can't be overstated. So then the question is, why are so many patients having negative interpersonal experiences in healthcare clinics? You know, why, why is that the reason why they're not coming back for their treatment? And I think if you dig down into the reasoning behind that, sometimes staff truly, yeah, they might be apathetic and they might hate their job, so to speak, but oftentimes it's because of two reasons. The first reason is, is the focus of healthcare in and of itself primarily in the United States and other places where you've got like third-party payers doing the majority of the of the dictating as to what gets reimbursed and how, it, it just creates an incentive structure where healthcare organizations and clinicians are more incentivized to placate or to serve the needs and desires of a third party rather than the individual who's receiving the care, the net beneficiary of the care. And then the other reason really has to do with what's called the process of care. So if you think about patients getting onboarded, for example, and they have to fill out all this paperwork and then the scheduling and all, all of the things that go into actually getting to your appointment and then having your appointment and then rescheduling a follow-up, all of those little touch points have the tendency to become procedural or assistant centric rather than person centric. So instead of focusing on the needs of an individual and making an individual feel heard, listened to and validated, that person that's receiving services really feels like they're a number on a on a wait list or a check mark on a to-do list rather than a, a unique person with a unique set of circumstances. So a lot of the work that I've done in the private world with that you know that website that you went to look at, Rehab View Practice Solutions, is really about helping healthcare organizations put the person back in healthcare, put the person back in healthcare. So I have done that a bit on the side as well, in addition to my work in the disability space. Excellent. Um, would you say that part of the problem is that the healthcare workers have to follow the each companies that they work for business model and sometimes the business model doesn't always um, give patients and clients um, a easy time oh yeah absolutely I mean the the range of options out there for business models for healthcare really narrows as the healthcare organization gets larger and larger. Right? Like it's easy for a a small and I just had somebody on on my podcast who runs a direct primary care office. So he doesn't deal at all with insurance. His patients pay him just a monthly fee and then they get direct access to him. And it totally removes all of the, the incentive structures. He's not worried about whether or not what he's going to do for a patient is going to be paid at the end of the day because he's getting paid regardless. And that works at a small level. But when you talk about huge healthcare organizations, I'm thinking like big hospital systems. I come from the from Department of Veterans Affairs is where my, the bulk of my hands-on clinical work 
stemmed from. I mean, those organizations are very much strapped by their system of doing things, their standard operating procedures, the way that they're receiving reimbursement. A lot of them are, many of them are are not in a position where they can take, you know, direct-to-consumer money, so to speak, or subscription, and they can't be very innovative because they're dependent on the reimbursement from these third-party pay. So, yeah, it, it definitely, where you're at and where you're working definitely has a huge uh, influence on on all of that. Why would you say that it's so hard to think outside the box? Um, and why would you say that so many professionals only do, only initiate what they're taught in school and don't balance what they what they're taught in school with being creative and using the imagination. Yeah, I mean, I think again, this is one of those complicated questions because you're really driving down at the heart of like what it means to operate in society. Almost it doing things that are innovative or doing things that are creative or imaginative is inherently risky, right? Like you might you might try something or initiate or cause an initiative or, or start a program that is creative, that's cutting edge, and it, it falls flat, right? And then there's the risk of, well, I lose my job if I try this, or, you know, what is management going to think if I try this new initiative and it goes south? So there is a little bit of this idea of, going along to get along for sure and if you think about the majority of human beings the majority of people out there in the world it takes a special person a special type of person who is is risk-taking enough to do that so i think there's that's that's one piece of it and then the other piece is that oftentimes and i've alluded to this before with the third-party payers driving a lot of health care is that oftentimes clinicians find themselves in a situation where they're just trying to keep their head above water. Right? They've got productivity requirements, the utilization requirements. They're they're required to spend X number of minutes out of the day directly treating the patient and not uh, not spending any time <laughs> uh, learning or thinking or expanding. So there is that incentive as well. Like these these physicians, clinicians, nurses have a, a requirement to be quote unquote productive and in the healthcare business world that means you need to bill somebody for that time. And all innovation, all creative thinking, all of that whole realm of business and of life is inherently inefficient. Right? It takes extra time and extra resources and unpaid time often to develop something that's very creative. So that's a piece of it as well. And then I think, you know, many clinicians into the world and they begin treating patients and they begin working in their area of specialization and it they just kind of fall into a rut. Like it's easy to do the same thing with the same types of patients or the same, you know, diagnoses. And I come from the orthopedic world, so you know, the an example there would be like, Oh, you get every shoulder or every patient that comes to your clinic with shoulder pain 
gets these four exercises and that's what you do for them. So it's just, it becomes easy. You can kind of turn your brain off and just do that as opposed to, to diving a little deeper, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, which one would you say is more difficult? Um, being interviewed or doing the interviewing? Oh, I like being interviewed more, probably because I like talking a little more. <laughs> I feel like interviewing itself is a harder job because you're having to listen a little bit more actively. You're trying to pivot if you have a question that got you know, answered partially and you want to get back to the, to the rest of it or something like that. The, have you ever um, seen or heard of any organizations that have had a three-step hiring program where first they have a phone call interview, then they have a video conferencing interview, and then they have a in-person interview. Um, and do you think that that idea is more effect would be more effective and um, would sort of weed out the the applicants that are not a good fit um, better than just doing one interview in person. I was talking about the three-part interview, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, I think I think that's more of an efficiency play on some of those organizations rather than a, a qualification play. And what I mean by that is I think it's easier if you have 100 applicants, it's easier to do 100 phone calls, narrow it down to video conferences and then narrow it down to the top tier that you bring in for a, an in-person an in-person interview. I think if you're really wanting to get down to hiring the right person for the right job, the three-part interview series may be appropriate. Um, I would think that what you would really want to know is more of, especially in healthcare, and especially with uh, hiring somebody who's going to be working with people who might have communication difficulties or some kind of other disability that you, you're going to want to see how they interact in a variety of settings. So I think more of a, it could be just one interview, but where you're exposing them to different communication styles, communication patterns, and the like would be more effective where you're hiring more for cultural fit rather than, than anything else. That's awesome. Um, I, for the right, one of the things that I recently realized is that often it's not thought of like, like this, but um, people with disabilities provide income for a lot of people. Um, 
For example, if it wasn't for people with disabilities, psychiatrists and psychologists would not exist. If it wasn't for people with, with disabilities, then a lot of mental health workers would not have a job. Um, and so I feel like often that's not talked about and that's swept under the rug, so to speak. And um, would you agree with that or would you disagree with that? And what are your thoughts on that topic? Yeah, I think um, I think that's a great question, and it's probably something that applies to all of care, not not just the disability space. But it becomes a little more challenging to think about, you know, healthcare as a business when you when you sit and think of it in those terms. Like the the whole reason that when I was at the VA, for example, that I had a job was because there were there were patients legitimately in pain that needed some kind of relief, right? When I was working uh, consulting with Georgia's Department of Behavioral Health, the whole reason I had a job was because prior to the contract being initiated, prior to the consulting firm being brought in to provide some clinical oversight, there were people being materially damaged because there was um, – some oversight in healthcare and, and think people are falling through the cracks. So it is it is something that is hugely important to understand and I think it's it's more important on an administrative or a managerial side, especially when we're talking about things like third party payers reimbursing and the incentive structures within healthcare. Um, but you're right, in the disability space just from my experience, I mean, you've got residential providers who are receiving some sort of reimbursement for the care that they're providing. You have mental health professionals, like you said, and then you have, and then you have all the ancillary healthcare providers that are all receiving some sort of monetary incentive or monetary remuneration, if you would, for providing services to these people. So yeah, it's. Um, it's a tough nut to crack, and it's not – I don't think there are many people who can talk about it um, without some sort of, you know, pause and think about the fundamental reasons and the ways wh how and and why we're reimbursing certain things and not others and how we, how we iron the money side of health. You all right? Actually – I would, I would totally agree with you. Um, that makes total sense. I feel like that often, more often than not, people who have disabilities did not choose to be born with a disability. Um, that was out of our control. Um, and so with that being said, <coughs> I feel like there's a lot of people out there that tends to blame 
people who have a disability for having a disability. And I don't think that that's right. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think um, people definitely sound heartless. I think when when you're talking about advocating for policy, healthcare policy here, or we're going to cut this service or cut this benefit. Um, and again, it's it's complicated because you're dealing with the the individuals who definitely need services and require services in order to live an engaged and healthy life. And then you're dealing with providers, essentially, who are being paid to do that. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a bit more on the, uh, I think the way I've, I've always looked at it has been that a society is so, so much judged on the way that it treats and the way that it provides for um, people who don't need help. That makes sense, but a society is really judged, and you can you can tell a lot about a country or an ethnic group or a culture by the way they treat the people among them who require the most assistance. Um, and that would be, in a lot of cases, individuals with with mental health and behavioral health challenges individuals with disabilities who legitimately require the assistance of others in order to to live meaningful, engaged lives. And the the mechanism by which we do it might be different, or we might have different views on, you know, who should be paying. Should it be a government program? Should it be a private agency? But I think ultimately we as a society have a collective responsibility to provide for those and to support those that that cannot otherwise do it without support, if that makes sense. So makes, I might be dodging the question there, but... <laughs> it makes perfect sense. Um, yeah. Um, I'm not, yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on the, the saying... One size fits all. Would you would you agree with that saying, or would you disagree with that saying? What was the saying? Sorry, cut out. One size fits all. One charge per what? One size fits all. Oh yeah, um, one size fits all. No, I have built a career and <laughs> my consulting practice. And the clinical work that I do is all built around the idea that we cannot do one size fits all. So there's a there's a great book out there called um, The End of Average, and in it he talks about the military back in the 50s or the 60s. They were trying something new, and they were they were losing like 60 or 70 percent of their airplanes were were crashing during training, and they didn't know why. They thought it had to do with the way the cockpits were designed because there were blind spots and, and pilots couldn't see out the window at a certain time. And so they they desi- decided to take measurements of every single uh, pilot that was in the Air Force at the time. And then they built the cockpit around the average of all those sizes. And what they discovered was that the, the crash rate didn't go down at all. 
So somebody else, somebody that was working in the Air Force said, well, have we even validated this data? He took all, it was something like 10,000 people, 10,000 measurements. And he, you know, took them all, averaged them all, and then went and compared each individual record to those average measurements. And what he found was that there were 10 key, key measures um, they used to build this cockpit. And what he found was that there was not one person of those thousands of people that they measured who fit all 10 of those measurements within the average. And it was only like, I can't remember the percentage. It was very, very small for the people who were three out of 10. So what that tells us is even from like a purely physical standpoint, there is no one size fits all. I mean, the average is the average, but the reality is Um, I guess my, my final question to you is if anyone wants to get into contact with you and if anyone wants to find out how they can receive services from you, how would they do that? And um, do you accept insurance? Do you accept credit cards? And what final words of advice do you, do you have to give to the, the listeners? Yeah, so my um, – I don't do any hands-on clinical work at this moment. I'll be starting a, a clinic here in Augusta shortly. But um, I'm involved with a group called CRA Learning. So that's www.cralearning.com. And what we do is we provide education and resources for clinicians serving individuals with disabilities as well as um, resources and insights for people that might be supporting maybe a family or family member or loved one who has a disability or self-advocates as well. Um, and you can find our information there. And, you know, some of those, we do offer some courses that are paid, and then we offer a bunch of resources that are, that are free. And that website should be launching by the end of 2020. And... Do you have any final words of advice? Yeah, advice for who? <laughs> advice for the listeners. Sure. Uh, I think if I can impress upon the listeners just one idea, and that you kind of hit on it, is that every human being is different, and we all come from our own different um pasts and histories and uh, contexts and environments. And I think it's very easy to, to just to think of somebody as aloof or rude or um, uncaring. But I would, I would encourage everybody to take a moment and maybe try to think a little deeper and think about that person in their situation, maybe they had a, they're having a bad day, maybe they're going through some family or marriage strife, or maybe they're, you know, they're stressed at their job and at their work. Primarily, if you're receiving services in a healthcare center and the, the person in the front office is, you know, short with you or cuts you off, 
just maybe give them a little bit of grace and realize that they're working in a system that in and of itself is very difficult to work in. I guess my, my last question to you is, do you have a a saying that you live by or that is your favorite saying? Um, um, my favorite saying, for example, is the grass is green wherever you water it. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. I think um, for me, my I grew up, my dad was, uh, he came to the U.S. back in the 80s, and he brought a lot of, he was from Costa Rica, he brought a lot of those sayings, <laughs> slang sayings, he was growing up all the time. One of the ones that he always said, which has stuck with me throughout my schooling and throughout my career, has always been, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. Um, and I think whenever I get stuck or whenever I think about cutting a corner or whenever I think about maybe resting on my laurels, I think back to my dad, you know, poking and prodding me as a young man and saying, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. Absolutely. That makes perfect sense. Um, I want to thank you sincerely for being on my podcast radio show. Um, and I want to thank you for your time. And would you be interested and having a a link to this podcast episode. Um, and if so, when would you like me to email to you? Yeah, no, thanks, man. It's been fun. Uh, sure. Yeah, you can email it to me whenever. And would you be okay with... Um, putting the link on your social media platforms? Yeah, for sure. We'll share it around. I would appreciate that. Um, Thank you, and I hope that we can stay in in the conduct. Yeah, no, absolutely. You got my email. Shoot me an email whenever you want. Have a good one, man. I hope you have a good day. Bye. Yeah, you too.